If you open your Bible, it's the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. Often when I think about uh, believers in other countries and the kinds of persecutions that they are suffering, you cannot help but be grateful and amazed at really the great freedoms that we have. And it did come at a cost. You know, we know that there are thousands and thousands of people who died to uh, save our country and to save actually other countries from the tyranny that's out there. And it just never ceases to amaze me. Uh, to think about what we actually have, most of us have just grown up with, you know, the freedoms that we have. And uh, I've heard testimonies or, yeah, I guess these testimonies of, of immigrants, China, those from China. And I know that not everybody comes here because we have freedom of religion. They just come here because we're free. Uh, but to hear um, those who come here from other countries where they have suffered for being believers and they talk about just the kind of, what, what we really can easily take for granted. Uh, and how much it means to them and how committed they are to ensuring that they worship God on a regular basis because it's a freedom that they didn't have before. Uh, so we, just, we need to remember uh, how good we have it in many ways uh, because of where we live and God's good grace to allow us to, to live here. Let's pray and uh, let's open the word. Fathers, we bow before you this morning. We are truly grateful, Father, for where we live. We know, Lord, it's not an accident. It is by your good grace that we live here. And we thank you, Father, for really the events in history and how things have turned out. And knowing, Lord, that all of that was according to your plan, and we definitely are benefiting from that. We pray, Lord, that we would not only be grateful, but also, Lord, that we would really take advantage of the freedoms that we have, realizing that we are free to live for you without any fear of reprisals. We do pray for those, Father, who do not have the kind of freedom that we do, especially our brethren in other countries who do suffer, where they are deprived of food and medicine and shelter, and sometimes even their freedoms, because and only because they are Christians. So, Father, we ask that you would watch over them and provide for their needs. Father, as we continue to worship and our our thoughts and our attentions are on you and all that you have done for us, we, Father, are also very much aware that you've preserved your word for us, that we will be granted understanding and wisdom. And so, Father, as always, we ask that as we open your word and focus on what is here, that you would grant us, Father, clarity of thought, that you would enable us, Father, to grasp the truth that is in the word of God, that, Lord, that we would think about it often, and that, Lord, that your spirit would use it to continue to shape us and to mold us into the image of your son, Christ. And so, Lord, as we open your word this morning, we thank you for it. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Just so you know what my thoughts are, uh, I don't think my thinking is all that convoluted uh, because we are going to begin to go through the book of Matthew. So naturally, you start with Genesis 3. Uh, and uh, the idea is, is kind of to remind us of why the Gospels are so important. The coming of Jesus. Uh, we don't want to assume uh, that we've got a good grasp. We may understand many things about it. Uh, there are many aspects that we need to be reminded of and why it is truly in every way a significant ev historical event that took place and what we're going to read as the pages unfold for us in Matthew. So beginning in Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1, 
It reads, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that, made, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, He will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So with that passage, which is a very famous passage, not only because it's in Genesis, and we're familiar with the story, because of all that it means theologically, all these spiritual truths, and, and giving us a very great understanding of what's going on really in our lives today and what's going on in the world. One of the principal facts about human beings, and we see this beginning here, is that we are habitually inclined to be independent from God. That is what man wants. He wants to be independent from God. You read Romans 1 and talk about man suppressing the truth. What is he suppressing? The truth about God. Who is God? Our creator. We are obligated to him. We don't like that. We want to be independent from him. When Satan was deceiving Eve, he said, if you eat this fruit, you will be what? Like God. We go back to Isaiah 14. What was the deal with Satan? He wanted to be like God. He wanted to be God. People want to be God. So if you're God, you're not obligated to anybody. You are autonomous from everyone. In fact, if you think about it, and I came across this in one of the books that I was reading. They were talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, when you just think about the tree, in the garden and all that it represents. We should think that in part, the tree also represents, or maybe it reveals, the distance between man and God. The distance there is between creature and creator. And the idea was to close the gap by eating from that tree. Now when we think about the story, there's no indication as to how the serpent manages to get into paradise. It's clear that God allowed him in. It's not clear that Adam failed to keep him out or that he was capable of doing so or even if he was supposed to do so. We're not given any of that information. What we do know is that Adam was not deceived and that he acted willfully. We also can tell, or if we see this in verse 10, that along with the shame of his nakedness came a fear of God's presence. We know that based on what is being described to us in the first several chapters of Genesis, there was this habit that God had of walking with Adam in the garden in the cool of the day. There's no mention of fear until this takes place. 
Now all of a sudden he's afraid. And, he's, and he and Eve are hiding from God. So Adam has this new knowledge because he ate from this tree. And this new knowledge, though, makes him take the irrational path of trying to hide from God. Remember that it's not a tree of wisdom. It's a tree of knowledge. So he still he has this knowledge, but he's not thinking correctly. His, his, the way he thinks, his mind has already been corrupted and affected by sin. Because it is irrational. He, remember, he knows God. He knows God is God the creator. He knows all of that. And what is he doing? He's hiding behind a tree, thinking, God can't see me. So, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, your, one of your kids, when they're real little, and they tell you that uh, they've watched Harry Potter and they have a blanket that can make them invisible. And they throw the blanket over their head, and there you see him standing in the middle of the living room. And then we play along and go, wow, where did you go? <laughs> I, I can't see you. And they think you can't see them. You know, it's just, that, that's, what, that's what Adam is doing. It's just, it's foolishness. You read Psalm 139, it makes it pretty clear that God is all-seeing and all-knowing. So it's futile to hide from him. When we, attempt, when we attempt to hide from God, we are telling ourselves something illogical. But that does furnish us with an excuse, or with the excuse we're looking for to pretend that, you know, because we deceive ourselves, that God doesn't see us. It's a lie that we have to believe if we want to be independent from God. It seems that Adam and Eve believed, or they thought, that if they obstructed their view of God, then his view of them was obstructed as well. Since then, mankind has excelled at persuading themselves that our Creator is not really there. We have done this by restructuring our beliefs about God, restructuring our beliefs about the world, and restructuring beliefs about ourselves. But as we should know, that only leads to fertility. So as the memory of the Garden of Eden fades, new ideas about God, man, and the world, partially taken from a distorted picture of reality, it becomes established in our hearts and minds. Another thing we need to learn and hold on to is that we must know precisely what God said and stick to it. We need to know precisely what God has said and then stick to that. Satan, when you look at the story, Satan is very forward. In fact, uh, one guy pointed out, and I thought uh, very accurately, that Satan is the first psychoanalyst because he claims to have evaluated God. God said to Adam, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. The serpent then reformulates those very plain words to give their supposed true sense. The new version is, in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the deceiver here is insinuating that God wants to be God alone. Of course, he is God alone, but there's a little bit of a, a wickedness behind that, behind this insinuation. Moreover, the essence of Godhood is predicated on and it consists of what someone knows. Hence, the serpent's new interpretation, Eve is offered the simple opportunity to transcend herself. This offer ignites pride within. It is something novel. It is exciting. That would really make her feel good about herself. And you look at many of the things that we really battled a lot in the church in the 80s and the 90s, you know, all the, the new age stuff that was coming out, which has been around, it's still there. But the idea was that, you know, it was kind of a transformed Hinduism 
And the idea is you can find the truth within, get in touch with the God or with the divinity within you because you are divine. That's people like that. You know, we want, we want to be in touch with the God or goddess that is within us. Basically, Satan's fundamental claim is that God's word doesn't mean what it appears to mean. Satan employs a language that hides very important assumptions about the real character of God. That God is jealous, that God is deceitful, and that God is self-centered. And that, there are those who think that even today. I've spoken with individuals who to- tell me that, you know, when they read the Bible, you know, it's always about God and glorifying God and worshiping God. And they've said, it sounds like an egomaniac. And I said, if God was a man, he would be. But he's God. It's a very different being. Because what? He really is the center of the universe. Everything really does come from him. Everything really is dependent upon him. That's, he's, not, you know, he's not self-centered. He, just, he is the center of all things. Now here's the thing to think about. Satan's ploy when he was speaking to Eve should not have worked. She should have simply ignored what the, what the devil said. Well, how would she have been able to do that? Think of it this way. She actually had enough revelation from God to rebuff the tempter. In the end, she allowed herself to be deceived. Now, you know, when we say things like that, people don't like that. We somehow think that when someone's deceived, they're just a victim. They are, in a sense, a victim, but not without full responsibility. She had all the revelation she needed from God himself, the creator of all things, the one who was perfect and righteous in every way, told her and told Adam what they should and should not do when it came to that tree. That was enough information. They did not need anything else to rebuff what the tempter said. They didn't need it. She just had to rely on that, trust that. When Satan spoke to her, he turned her attention away from God's word to the tree. He took her attention away from God's word to the forbidden fruit. And he appeals directly to her emotions. He doesn't appeal to her reason. Because again, verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now what he says may sound reasonable in the sense that it's a logical statement, but he's appealing to her emotion. This is what you get. This is what you're going to have. And that's what he's appealing to. And it works because we know what she does. She sizes the tree up. She looks at it. And she made what uh, an individual, because of this idea of we want to be independent, we want to be autonomous. Someone pointed out that she made an autonomous inspection. So her first two conclusions agreed with God. Because if you go back to chapter 2, verse 9, it says, And out of the ground... The Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So he says of every tree, which includes the the knowledge of good and evil, every tree was pleasant to see, pleasant to look at, and it was good for food. And so when you look at chapter 3, verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was what? Good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes. So she's in agreement. So far, she's inspecting the tree. Satan says, you know, you eat this stuff, you're going to be like God. You're going to do good from evil. She looks at the tree and like, oh yeah, it's beautiful. And that that food is 
that food is good, it's delicious. But then she added information. The information she added was the information that was from the serpent's insinuation. And it was desirable to what? Make one wise. So this is how, again, the, the, the devil kind of, he can get to us. The idea is he appeals to the emotion. We, 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 we look at something and we do so in a sense in an autonomous way. We take information from the Bible and we take information from other sources. Whether from the world or from Satan, however you want to put it. And we bring those things together and then we make an evaluation. And that gets us in trouble. If she had just taken God at his word and just lived in obedience to what God had said, we wouldn't have this trouble. That's not what she did. That's how we get in trouble. You know, we read the Bible and there are times when a lot of times the Bible is really fairly clear. And what do we and we add to that our own thoughts, our own information, our own view, our own perspective. In fact, there's, there's, a, there's a few well-known individual, individuals who go around to college campuses uh, speaking about their skeptics about the Bible. And some of them are, they call themselves former Christians. And there's, there's a, a way they speak that they present themselves and the information they want to give to those they're speaking to. The whole idea in the, these speeches is to undermine your confidence in the word of God. And so the way they do that is the individual will say, well, I was raised in a Christian home and I went to a Bible-believing church my entire life and I even went to a college where they teach the Bible and then they use this phrase. But then one day, I decided to read the Bible for myself. That's a very powerful statement when you're speaking to a group immediately just that statement throws out on everything he just said incredible doubt and the individual who in their sin because of our sinful state we hear that yeah it's almost as if the christian home and the christian church and the christian school were brainwashing you they weren't but that's kind of insinuated in that that when i broke free from that and thought for myself which also insinuates that what? We are the sole determiner or the main determiner of what? What is true. See how that works? And so the individual then proclaims that when I began to read the Bible for myself, I then began to see the problems. I began to see the contradictions. And as I began to look at them and I did my research here, I then came to this conclusion over here. And of course, what they don't say is which, what they're insinuating is, and if you want to be smart and brilliant like me, you should do the same thing. You should break free of the brainwashing. You should break free of these ideas that have been forced on you and think for yourself. And many people who are looking for an excuse gravitate to that. So again, the words, in one sense, have really no power in and of themselves, but in the context in which they're delivered and the way they're delivered can be very powerful, very strong. Satan does the same thing. And Eve falls for it immediately. And so again, what she does is she looks at the tree again on her own. It's like she's almost as if she's saying, oh, let me look at this again. Because I now have what? New information. She's not evaluating the information she got. She could have said, well, wait a minute now. 
you're saying something different than what God said. So is, did God lie? She could have gone that route, but she didn't do that. She did, she just, in a sense, swallowed what he said. And then she looked at the tree, and then she said, yeah, it is beautiful. Yeah, fruit looks really, really good. And this new information can make me wise. Huh. Now, what does she do with that? She makes her own conclusion. Satan doesn't make her do anything. She eats. She takes of the fruit, and she eats it. She was foolish. She made an independent appraisal, which made it possible to consider the serpent's words as valid. She felt it was proper for to add her opinion to God's assessment. That's where human pride comes in. When we study the Bible, we always have to be aware of that, that we don't allow our pride to come in. You know, I've talked to a lot of people about, you know, there's some, some awkward or, uh, I guess, kind of situations that the Bible describes that can make us uncomfortable because of where we may be in life. One of those is the hold when, it, when you deal with the area of divorce and remarriage in the Bible. There's just, it's, it's, we get nervous sometimes when we talk about it. We don't want people to misunderstand. We don't want people to get uh, upset. Uh, we may have friends and maybe we're not sure where they fall on the spectrum and there's just all this stuff. And so, you know, when it comes to that, we, kinda, we, we can bring our own ideas to the table. And, and what I discovered, I think I've shared with you before, that at one point in my life, uh, I was uh, having a discussion with this um, uh, military guy uh, who was kind of involved with a married woman. And um, the plan was she was going to divorce and marry him and all these things. And, and, uh, but he was a Christian, and he was unsure as to what the Bible said about that. And so I explained it, what I believe the Bible said, and we looked at the Bible, and then the first thing he said when we finished is, well, but I've read a Christian book that didn't say that. And I was, I was, I was, I mean, I was running a Christian bookstore and I was surprised by that. So what I did um, was, there's a set of books, I guess they still print them, uh, but it's six volumes. And if I was to stack it here, it comes to about here. And it's the title, every single book in print in America. So you can look up anything. And they have a topical index, an author index, uh, and things like that. So, so I did my best to try to find out and try, and I ordered one copy of every single book I could find written from a Christian perspective on the question of divorce and remarriage. And at that time, which was in the late 80s, there were 38 different titles that were in print. And so I got them all, and I read all of them. My first conclusion, you can pretty much believe whatever you want to believe about divorce and remarriage. You'll find some Christian somewhere or someone who says they're a Christian who will, who will say, yep, that's exactly what the Bible teaches. That was nuts. So then you still, you have the same problem. How in the world do I figure out what the Bible actually says? Well, the first thing, which I know may sound shocking, is you go back to the Bible itself. And you read it, and you outline what it says. And just look at what it is saying. Regardless of what you may feel or think or anything else, there's no yow buts. It's just, what does it say? We can answer those questions later when we have a solid understanding of what it's actually teaching us. And then figure that out. And then you can figure out what, I guess, the category someone falls into. And of course, it, you know, the Word of God cuts pretty sharply and definitively in many areas. And you know, that's the other issue we have. We don't like that. And so we just kind of, if, if, if we don't hear someone say what we want, then we just go somewhere else. 
which is oftentimes what happens. And that's what's going on here. Eve was in a position of autonomy, and that's exactly where the devil wanted her to go. In assuming it, she had to come out from under the umbrella of revelation and come out from the umbrella of dependence upon God. And let me just throw this out there. There are those who sometimes feel, and there is a sense that is out there, that to live in dependence upon the word of God is a position of weakness. There are Christians who sometimes feel that way, that it means that we're not free thinkers or that we're not thinking for ourselves. To depend upon the Bible does not mean you're not thinking for yourself, but that's an assumption that is made because we have made, in a sense, absolute freedom to be the number one thing, so that can cause some some difficulties in the way we approach many things, but in this case, we're talking about what God has said in the Bible. And so we have to work hard on that. It's not as easy as it sounds. We are to image God. We should never be in, in a perilous position of I'm not dependent upon God and I am not in submission to what he has said. Independence then, in a sense, can be the ground motive of the sinner. So what's the effects of independence is, is to force us to find dependence in groups. So when you become independent from God, we are, because of how we are created, we still look for something to depend on. And what we do is we are led to groups, groups that may be led by strong personalities. Basically what I'm talking about is our identity is reduced by our estrangement from our maker. We've heard a lot of this on the news in various ways, those who engage in pop psychology and all those things about people looking for their identity. And I identify as that. And, I, and then, of course, the idea is that whatever you identify as, no matter what it is, must be accepted by others and celebrated by others. Because whatever you say your identity is cannot be wrong because it comes, I guess, because it comes from within you, which would be ridiculous. Because, you know, when your children, when, they, when, when your boy says, I want to be a dinosaur, we'll go along with that for a while. But that would be troubling if he was 12 and he says, I want to be a dinosaur. Or if he says, I am a dinosaur. And then you say, well, you may look like one, but you're not a dinosaur, son. You know, so you're not going to act like one. And then it's even more troubling, if, if normally, we go even more troubling as that person gets older. So, but why is there this identity crisis in our society? And it's because we're, see, it's spiritual. It comes back to that. That's not an oversimplification. That's not an overgeneralization. That is true. The further away we get from God, the more lost we are. So again, our identity is reduced because of our estrangement from our maker. We need a God substitute. You see, God made us, God made man to operate in dependence on his good and wise counsel. To depend upon God does not entail any lack of freedom. <coughs> in fact, the reverse is true. We are designed as human beings to function under the word, not alongside of it. But again, Eve decided to act independently in assessing the tree. And that has been the default position of every person that's been born since then, except for one. Verse 6 says, And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So there's been this ongoing, not really a disagreement, uh, differences. There are those who believe that 
when it says Adam who was with her, it does not necessarily mean that Adam was like right there next to her when all this took place. And there are those who do believe that. I'm in the latter group, but I'm not going to die on that hill. Um, it doesn't really matter. Adam knew whatever she gave him, whether it was at that moment or not, he knew what that was. It wasn't like he said, oh, I had no idea what that fruit looked like, and so I just ate it. It's not what, you know, I think there's a distinctiveness to what it's looking like because he never brings up that excuse. He just says, the woman you gave me, she gave it to me, and I ate it. He knew what it was. But what's important is, and it says this in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Adam was not deceived. Eve was deceived. Adam was not deceived. So here's what's important. Even though, so Eve is not guilty in the sense that Eve is never charged with willful sin. Adam is. I don't know how all that works because I don't, I don't see how you can separate the will, but that's not what she's charged with. It clearly says she was deceived. And I, I think that, that because she's held 100% responsible for what she's done, you know, she doesn't get out of anything. She's still, you know, she, there's still a curse that's pronounced um, on both the man and the woman through all of this. So she's not relieved of any responsibility, but Adam is clearly the one who's charged. We don't ever say that we're under the curse of Eve. It's the curse of Adam. It's the sin of Adam. It's not the sin of Eve. She sinned, but it's not the sin of Eve. It's Adam. That's what the scripture says. It's pointed out that Adam and Eve were told by Satan that they would be like God if they ate. And there's what I thought was interesting. If you eat of this tree, you will be like God. Think about it for just a moment. They were already like God. They were made in his image. So where's the, where's the benefit? It would be almost like saying, someone coming up to me today, you know, Bob, if you take this supplement, you'll be a man. Um, well, I don't really have that need right now, um, as I am a man. Uh, are you doubting that I'm a man because I'm not getting this? That would be ridiculous, right? Why, why would you? This doesn't make any sense. So they were already like God. They, they were made in the image of God. And here Satan comes along and says, you know, you eat this, you'd be like God. Well, I don't know what their IQs were. I'm not going to say they're dumb because, again, they're not, there's no excuse given to what they've done. It just seems odd, but they weren't thinking clearly for sure. But since that day, man has been locked into a state of creaturely independence, and our eyes have taken in, and we have known all the false knowledge which comes with the autonomy of reason. When we reason independently, we will often see what we want to see, and what we want to see is not always friends with the truth. So it doesn't diminish our ability to think in one sense. We can think. But the way we think has been affected. Again, it goes back to Romans 1. Not only what we think about is evil because we have evil thoughts, but we are losing our ability to think correctly, coherently. It doesn't mean that we are blatantly illogical all the time, but there are times, haven't you ever seen an individual that says, I just don't see that, I know him. He is so smart. Why did he do that? That's so dumb. Oftentimes they have these shows where they go into these stories of a husband and a wife and they're not getting along and one of them murders the other. And so sometimes we think, I mean, I'm not for divorce, but could they not have divorce? Why murder? Like, how is that going to, I don't understand that. Now you go to prison for the rest of your life. Where's the logic in that? And, and there's been some in many cases, you know, sometimes I guess you can understand in a sense the motive if one of them has, I guess, some kind of high-priced life insurance. 
Now, there's a lot of times that's not even, that's not, that's not the case. Why did you kill him? It's just, it's futile. Man is just sometimes an idiot. And yet we know all that comes from, where, we, all, we all know where that comes from. When we read about men and women of God in the Bible, you'll notice that those who are men and women of God are usually bucking the trend. They're, because their minds remain dependent on God's word. I guarantee you that Noah was bucking the trend when he was building the boat. In fact, it, we think that he was building the boat up on the hills. It wasn't like he was on the beach next to the ocean. He's building this massive boat and tells people, well, I guess it's going to rain. But it hadn't rained before. And of course, this, the boat is immense. You know, if, you, if you've ever gone to the Ark exhibit up in Kentucky, you need to go see it. Just looking at it from the outside, you're like, yeah, how do you build something like that? Uh, and people not think that there's something off with who you are. All right? And so that, that's what took place. He was bucking the trend, but he was following what God said. God gave him very clear instructions. Not only have their minds and Noah's mind and, other, and our minds should remain dependent on God's word, that is the, really the function of faith. Because what is faith? It is trust. We live by faith. It means I live by trust. Trusting in who? I trust in God. I trust in what God has said. It is faith in God's word which, word which closes the breach between our minds and God's mind. Let me read to you several passages of scripture. Romans chapter two, 12, beginning in verse 2. I'm not going to read this from the Amplified. Do not be conformed to this world or this age, fashioned after and adapted to its external and superficial customs, but be transformed, be changed by the entire renewal of your mind, by its new ideals and its new attitude, so that you may prove for yourselves what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God, even the thing which is good and acceptable and perfect in his sight for you. So the whole thing there is, is this uh, telling us not to be like the world, to be conformed to the world, but to protect your mind and make sure your mind is shaped by the word of God and depend upon that and submit to that. Psalm 18, verse 30. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. We are to rely on him, rely on what he said. He can be trusted. He's trustworthy. When it, when it comes to the gospel, think of it this way. When someone refuses to believe the gospel, they are refusing to what? Trust what God has said. That's what they're refusing. You and I, if you believe the gospel, we are trusting what God has said. We trust the truth of that. We trust the power of that. We're believing in what he's told us. Psalm 19, beginning of verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them, there is great reward. Too bad David wasn't around first, and he could have written this, and Eve could have recited this. Because it says that when it comes to this, it's more to be desired than what? It says here gold. We could also say more to be desired than what? Wisdom to be like God. God's word, what he said, that is what's to be desired. Because why? His precepts, they're true, they're sure, they're perfect, they're right, they're pure. It's clean. It endures forever. It will cause your heart to rejoice. 
It, that makes you wise. Because it makes what? Wise the simple. That's what we need. You and I have inherited Adam and Eve's bent towards reasoning independently before God's word. So we want to keep those things in mind. There's a few other things we want to look at as we bring all these things together to help us to understand the reaction that took place when Jesus came, when we begin to go through Matthew. The reaction of what happened then when Jesus came and the reaction that people have now to who Jesus is. It's going to help us to recognize, again, the, the great significance of who Jesus is and of his life. Not that you don't know those things. We want to solidify those things and perhaps maybe add a few more things to help maybe more, round out more our understanding of who Jesus is and why it is so magnificent in every way. Because many of us have been brought up with the gospel, it doesn't always have, in a sense, the kind of impact that we know that it really should have on us. I mean, it does, but it, it doesn't. It's not quite always there. It doesn't always have the punch that it really should have. And we should want it to have that in our lives, to recognize the dynamic that it is, because it is the truth of God, and it does all of these things for us. We need to understand what it is that we are up against within ourselves. What is our temptation, which is to move away from God, to be independent from God, to be autonomous from God, to think autonomously. That's why we're so susceptible to the world, which constantly is trying to give us information, always trying to use knowledge without wisdom to get us to move away from God, to somehow think we don't need God. We can solve these things on our own, and we cannot. We are just simply unable to because of sin and the power of sin and the strength of sin. And maybe, again, our, uh, there'll be a, a renewed recognition of our need of Christ and a greater appreciation for the power of Christ in our lives. And then, of course, a growing thankfulness that God has truly saved us from our sin and saved us from the effects of sin and saved us from ourselves. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you so much for your word and for all that is packed into the scripture that really helps us, Father, to understand ourselves and to understand our plight and to understand our society and to understand history and to understand the future. And with that, Father, you give us an understanding of who you are, of what you have said, of what you have done, and of what you're going to do. We thank you, Father, for your consistency. We thank you, Father, for your grace. We thank you, Father, for your love and your goodness. We thank you, Lord, that you have communicated to us. And, Father, we ask that we would recognize those things, that we would embrace those things, and that, Father, we would have that desire, which would come from your spirit, to hunger for your truth and the knowledge that you give us. Thank you, Father, for being so patient with us. And, Father, for those here this morning who may not know Christ, Lord, we know that you've been incredibly patient with them. We pray that you would convince them of their need of Christ. They would recognize the weaknesses within, that they would see the joylessness that they are experiencing, that they will, Father, be aware of the hopelessness that they are living in, and realize, Lord, that they are unable to remedy those things themselves. But they'll recognize, Lord, that it comes by submitting to who you are and the words you've given us. Father, again, as always, we are grateful to you for your goodness. And we do ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.